Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Ballot Box Elections Around the World. I want to start by saying a big thank you to everyone who has listened to the first episode that we put out last week and also who has followed us on Twitter where we are at Ballot World. We should now be available on pretty much all of the major podcasting platforms, obviously Spotify where we started and then also now on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts as well. So please um, do rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from. Okay, so this episode, we're going to be continuing our look at the November elections, which we started last week. And this is going to include the parliamentary elections, which took place in Georgia. Um, And for this, we're going to be uh, joined by the New Statesman's international correspondent, Ido Vox, to take us through the results of that election and also the quite contested aftermath, which is still playing out. And we're also going to be taking a look at the presidential elections, which happened in Moldova last month, um, which produced a quite a surprising result. And we are also going to be taking a dive into the elections which took place in Puerto Rico, um, which took place alongside the U.S. presidential elections. So, Chris, why don't you uh, kick us off um, with our discussion of the elections in Puerto Rico? So along with um, the elections in the US, um, there were also elections in uh, many of the territories that the US holds, with the largest and most significant of which is uh, uh, Puerto Rico, um, has incredibly fascinating politics and is in many ways a proposed um, US state as well. Um, and and has had kind of interesting uh, local um, politics in recent years with uh, both the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in which uh, many lives were tragically lost and which the US federal government was seen to have mishandled and also because of local controversies around corruption and politics. Um, so um, let's start off with, um, shall we start with basically just trying to cover who the main political parties are? Yeah, historically been three, although this election has kind of expanded mm. representation to five uh, in the territorial legislature. Um, so the, yeah, they're based and more, I mean, I don't know whether you would agree with this, Andres, but historically the main divide being more constitutional rather than socioeconomic between the two largest parties. Yeah, so so one of the interesting things about Puerto Rican politics is that at least the popular conception of, of, of them is that they're all, the main divides are revolve around what the relationship should be to the United States. Mm-hmm which is really interesting. So they don't really map on to like Republicans or Democrats, even though politics in the United States is really important for Puerto Ricans. And they do kind of end up um, identifying with some parts of the Democratic or Republican party. But the cleavages in the United States really don't map on to the cleavages in Puerto Rico, which are very, at least they're couched in the, Couched in terms of the relationship to the United States. Yeah, so the, there is the the popular Democratic Party, which is the kind of pro, um, for a long time pro status quo party. Although, again, the process moved more towards um, 
seeking a looser relationship with the US in recent years. Mm. And there's the New Progressive Party, which is the pro-statehood party. Um, and then historically, there's also the Independence Party, which was a third party, um, probably took a more um, differentiated stand on the left-right spectrum as well, probably considered to be slightly more leftist than the other two. Um, but obviously, as the name suggests, in favour of um, creating an independent state for Puerto Rico. But then they, they've added um, a couple of more. There's the uh, Citizens Victory Movement, um, which emerged out of a independent bid for the governorship in the last election. And then there's this thing called Project Dignity, which is a quite socially conservative and anti sort of anti-corruption focused party as well. And they all of these parties now have representation in the territorial legislature after this election. It's, it's my understanding that the Citizens Victory Movement, as you well said, uh, emerged from like uh, an independent bid for for um, for office, but it's also a party that's trying to run on the social movement of 2019 yeah. against Rosselló, which Chris um, mentioned kind of in passing, but I think we can get into as we approach like the the the, the plebiscite on statehood. So who who actually won the elections? So we've got the governorship and we've got um, Congress essentially. So uh, both the House of Representatives and the Senate, and and of course then there was a a referendum on statehood. But let's talk about the 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 government um, elections first, and then we'll move on to the statehood referendum. That sounds about right. Yep. And then uh, also the 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 commissioner, the resident oh, yes. commissioner. And the resident commissioner, um, yeah, we can, let's talk about that briefly afterwards. I imagine that's probably an easy win for the Democrats. Am I right in thinking? Or because <laughs> um, I think they con- they caucus with the Democrats at least, don't they? So, uh, well, it's, I think from my impression that the 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 two largest parties, historical largest parties, they they have a kind of slightly uncertain relationship with the parties in. The US. So um, I think the Popular Democrats, which is the pro uh, Commonwealth Party, is more consistently aligned with the Democrats. And then the new progressives tend to um, sort of flip between the the Democrats and the Republicans. To right. Agree. So it's a similar thing to what you have in Northern Ireland here, from what I understand, in that a lot of people are basically members of a US party and and a and a Puerto Rican party, um, and and sometimes there's a line, and sometimes they don't. Um, but a lot of the time, a lot of the time, it's uh, one way or the other. I'll leave Andres to go into a little bit more detail about um, the kind of campaign factors, but um, just by broadly the results, the New Progressives um, very narrowly retained the the governorship although with a different candidate from last time and wasn't reflective of the legislative result. So the popular Democrats um, gained a very s- small majority in the House of Representatives of one seat. And then there was no majority with the popular Democrats being the largest party in the Senate. So not, not a convincing um, victory for a, a single party, by any means. No, and that kind of makes sense with how fragmented the party system has become. Um, and 
I mean, it's first past the post for all these, right? So, it, it, but even despite that, uh, I, I understand it was quite a close popular vote uh, amounts in, in, in each of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's just surprising that the um, new Progressive Party would win the governorship. So, mm -hmm. Hurricane Hurricane Maria um, hit in hit in 2017 and then so, the, so there, there was a whole scandal around mismanagement and corruption and the capacity that the Puerto Rican government had to actually ask for federal funding in FEMA which did provide quite a lot of funding um, so Hurricane Maria was disastrous because it also hit Puerto Rico's economy which was already in decline and had has and has had around 20 years of stagnation. Mm -hmm. um, so it was already pretty bad. But then in, uh, in uh, be between December 2018 and January 2019, the governor of Puerto Rico, Rosselló, was shown to have had a chat on, uh, on his cell phone with uh, other kind of important Puerto Rican politicians, which was then leaked. And this episode is sometimes called Ricky Leaks, Ricky Leaks, because his name is Ricardo Rosselló, mm -hmm. um, sometimes referred to as Ricky Rosselló. And the chat just showed that uh, it, was a, it was just kind of like a extremely messy chat. And he spoke terribly of so many different people using kind of crass language and then also kind of showing callousness towards the suffering of like, you know, of, 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 of the population. So he called like San Juan mayor who, who publicly opposed him and criticized his handling of Hurricane Maria. He said of her, I am salivating to shoot her. He called uh, Puerto Rican singer Ricky Martin patriarchal because he uh, chose to have sex exclusively with men. Um, and he said, he, you know, he, in the chat is revealed to have said that he should, that it, to ask whether or not there were more um, bodies to feed to crows, uh, referring to the, you know, death toll in Maria and the way that um, people were criticizing the government because of the death toll. So this was really, really scandalous and he was forced to resign. And the 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 um, Wanda Vasquez, who's the current governor, um, took over because she was the um, she was the minister of justice. So it's kind of surprising that, given this scandal, which was really hard for the for the new progressive party, that that they would win the governorship again. Um, and it partially explains why they, but they had like a drop in in the in the percentage of vote that they obtained but it's still kind of it's still really surprising that given this because the the ricky leaks the text messaging scandal then evolved into massive protest in in 2019 um squares being filled and like really the a lot of leading voices in puerto rico including bad bunny who is now a rising uh, hip-hop star you know, um, speaking out against Rosselló and, and, and the and current 
government. Yeah. I mean, I guess in some extent, was that also to do with the popular movement for statehood? So even though the party isn't popular, their candidates are are kind of connected to corruption, you know, in the popular mind, there uh, there's questions around their ability to govern. At the same time, like Puerto Rican public opinion seems to be swinging quite strongly towards statehood as the kind of best model of government for for them. Um, and that's that's a that's a really perceptive point. So. Each of the parties, like the Independence Party, the the PPD, the Popular Democratic Party, and the New Progressive Party, have each have each attached themselves to a particular kind of relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States. And and, and you're right, like the most popular alternative at the moment, it's been growing, is statehood, much more than like free association or independence. And I guess the the PNP capitalizes on that um, mm. because they, they do clearly advocate for, for and statehood. Given the referendum at the same time as well, that's, yeah. uh, that probably gives them a little boost. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose there's also probably the slight function of the um, electoral system, given that it's like a first-past-the-post election for this for the uh, governorship, um, and the, the new progressive candidate only received about 33% vote and you had four candidates with more than 10 percent um so then mm. alexandra lugaro the citizens victory movement candidate gained 14 percent and then the independence party candidate also received around 14 percent as well so yeah it's i mean obviously it's going to be pure speculation but if this was held under a, a two-round system then maybe they would have stood less of a chance of maintaining the, the governorship good point definitely very good point so how did the um, referendum go on Puerto Rico's status? So this is, this is a kind of fascinating election, or a fascinating referendum. The, the question itself was, should Puerto Rico be admitted immediately into the United States? Yes or no? And 52.34% of Puerto Ricans voted in favor of this option. Now, what are the effects of that? The effects are... Um, not huge, actually, to be honest. So the effects are that the government now has to form a seven-person commission to study to 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 study the matter and come up with a plan to integrate Puerto Rico in, as a state of the United States. And then uh, this seven-member commission will will present their plan to Congress and the President of the United States, and um, you know lobby in favor of statehood. But there's no legally there's there's no uh, legal force behind that. So ultimately, it's Congress, it's the U.S. Congress, who will decide the fate of Puerto Rican statehood. Yes, and only yeah. and only U.S. And only the U.S. Congress. And and given that it's not certain, but likely that the Senate is going to have a Republican majority in a new presidential term, that's going to um, that gives the Republican Party some veto power over it, and the Republicans tend to not like the idea of Puerto Rican um, statehood because they think that it would be two extra senators for the Democrats. 
Um, although, although given the way that the presidential election seems to have gone amongst Hispanics, perhaps they're getting a bit ahead of themselves. But well, yeah. that's, that's an interesting point. Puerto Ricans in in the so there are more Puerto Ricans living what what's called stateside, living in in like mainland USA, than there are Puerto Ricans living. On the island, so there's about yes. like three three million Puerto Ricans on the island, and about almost six million Puerto Ricans stateside. And Puerto mm-hmm. Ricans in the United States oh, tend to live in like large cities, mostly like New York and Orlando, Miami, um, although not exclusively, obviously. And yes, most Puerto Ricans in in the United States tend to vote, but I mean they tend to vote Democrat even yeah. now, like even in Florida where. Republicans yeah, had gains well, in like his Hispanic Latinx voters. A lot of for most Puerto Ricans voted for Joe Biden, but I don't think that Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico would necessarily vote for Democrats. Like I think the election could be pretty competitive, actually. Yeah, yeah, and as well, there was I think there was a swing amongst Puerto Ricans, although not as strong perhaps as amongst other Hispanic groups this year. And they're coming from a higher base as well. But I think there was a kind of noticeable swing in Orlando in particular um, mm. towards, the, towards the Republicans, mm. which particularly with Hurricane Maria is, and the way that Trump was considered to have handled that is kind of surprising. But, um, but um, it does... I, I think that a lot of narratives about Hispanic voters in the U.S. are very simplistic, and and imagine that Hispanic voters are motivated by a quite narrow set of issues. Which I mean, particularly Hispanic voters are an incredibly diverse group, um, in in terms of how long they've been settled, where they come from, um, their class status their race, because, you know, the, the many Hispanic people are, are, are essentially Caucasian, but many others are black. Many are black. Yeah. Many are black. Uh, many are, you know, I think the, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, Andreas, but I think the biggest population in, in Latin America is Mystico, people of mixed origins. Yeah, no, it's essentially like racial, American racial categories don't um... map onto... Yeah, they don't map onto like Latin American identity issues. They increasingly do, partially because of its their influence and partially because that's how American parties and politics work. But just like the just the category of Hispanic or Latinx is already kind of too broad and and really mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's problematic. It's it's really um I wonder if the U.S. political system can come up with better categories, though, because they have like a real function trying to group people together. But you saw that, like, um, it was interesting to see like the map of the electoral map of Texas now in 2020. Um, a lot of people of Mexican heritage voted for Trump um, on the border, for example, which was fascinating to to kind of um, yeah. read about, um, despite like the El Paso shooting against Mexican, targeting Mexicans and stuff. There's also a big division between like first, second, third generation um, Hispanics and stuff, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah and uh, the swings do seem pretty universal. So like one, one of the things that I thought when it first came about was 
oh, maybe the swings will be much lower in California and Nevada because those are historically more left-leaning Hispanic populations. But the, the, the swings do seem to be there, albeit not as strong. Um, yeah. So this is, this is like a roundabout way of uh, talking about the the actual effect of the referendum in Puerto Rico. So mm. the referendum on statehood, although it sees like a narrow but you know clear majority in favor of statehood, does not you know mean much actually. Doesn't mean um, anything automatic, yeah. Right, and a lot of the political calculus around whether or not Puerto Rico would actually become a state has to do with what. Uh, parties in the United States and in Congress expect would happen if Puerto Rico were to become a state. Um, mm. And that has to do with also their capacity to kind of like um, use the sort of categories that they use, whether they're, you know, uh, whether Latinx, Hispanic people actually vote in a single way or what the cleavages are within the community. It's very different. Um, migration, for example, immigration is an issue, is not an issue for Puerto Ricans in the way that it is for people of Mexican or Central American heritage because they don't, they, they're not, they're not immigrants, right? So when they move to the United States, they're obviously already they, American they, they citizens. Have, yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of places like in New York, um, there's been a lot of, you know, pushback against some pro immigrants. Um, pro-immigrant policies because they feel, because Puerto Ricans feel like they compete with, like, for the same jobs as other like lower, some low skilled immigrants. But when it comes to, for example, the Spanish language, which is an essentially pro-immigrant policy, Puerto Ricans are in favor of that, right? Because they, most of them speak Spanish at home. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then the other thing is that Puerto Rico would be to my understanding, by far and away the poorest state in the union. Um, and, and one of the long-term questions, as I understand it, in Puerto Rican politics is for a long time, their economic model was essentially that of a tax haven. And, and that's kind of been kind of exploded by um, recent, recent years. But, but the fact that the federal taxes don't apply there um, has been a huge part of their economic model. And so it, it does also create kind of huge socioeconomic questions, not just in terms of, okay, so how, what, what is Puerto Rico's new model of economic growth, but also, like, um, also in, to what extent is the US willing to pay into Puerto Rico? What, what what extent is uh, what extent is um, the U.S. Uh, uh, to what extent is is Puerto Rico able to kind of carry the economic burdens of being a U.S. state? Um, so there's a, some quite difficult questions around there, which I, I sometimes feel like I scooted over in terms of the, the debates about Puerto Rican statehood. Sure. True. But then there's also the, the, the kind of the argument of, I guess, there's a big argument around like democracy and representation. Yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and that kind of carries together as well. Like one of the reasons why Puerto Rico is ignored is because it's not, right. because it's not a state. It doesn't receive the economic support that a state normally would. 
Right, right. And you even you even hear like um, PNP politicians who are like you know center right, conservative, whatever. Even you know using words such as like colony, right? Like we have to like stop being a colony, <laughs> which is is pretty strong language. This is the um, this is the sixth sixth time that there's been a referendum on the status of Puerto Rico. The first being in 1967. And so each one has been slightly different um, in, in, in the questions that are asked, but they're essentially getting at the same thing. And it's interesting to see how statehood has grown. So in like 1967, there was only a about around a 39% um, support for statehood. In 1993, there was a 46, nearly 47% uh, support for statehood. In 98, it was about the same as in 93. In 2012, there was, it was the first time that there was like a majority in favor of yes, statehood, 61%. Um, and then in 2017, in a, in a referendum organized by the, uh, the already mentioned and controversial Doceyo, Although that was this was before Hurricane Maria hit, um, there was a ninety-seven percent support for statehood in two thousand seventeen. Yes. Although vo voter turnout was extremely low. Yes, there was a was, boycott. Yeah, there was a boycott by the opposition parties because the um, because of arguments over question wording. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. that, that that's why turnout was so low, uh, but also why. Uh, because the, obviously people who are pro statehood didn't have a problem with the question word, and it, it was like it was it was really telling things as well. Like I think there was an argument that the basically some of the stuff in the question wording basically stated as fact things that are contested by the other um, parties in Puerto, Puerto Rico. So. That kind of demonstrates how deeply this runs as a, a as a political issue. The kind of stuff that you might see in Northern Ireland, where you know the, the names of things become incredibly important. Another thing I thought was interesting to mention about um, this year's referendum was that the, according to the um, the wording of the bill, then a no vote would not have meant the status quo, but to set up another seven-member commission to negotiate for uh, free association. And yes. even though on the surface it just looks like a kind of straight yes or no question, the, the no vote would also have meant a, a kind of change of status as, as well, or, or kind of an implication that the people had voted for yeah. it. It seems that basically everyone in Puerto Rico is of agreement that the status quo no longer works. The traditionally pro, uh, pro status quo party, yeah, decided to move more to a, a free association position. Which is almost a step towards independence, sorry. And in, in fact, um, the wording was, was yeah, so the wording was 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 quite controversial. I mean, it's always, going, it's always going to be controversial, but even the Department of Justice in the United States um, kind of argued against uh, federal funding being used for the plebiscite, sorry, for the referendum, because given the wording, given that the wording was a yes, no for statehood, um, the official uh, Department of Justice opinion read would be a tacit endorsement for the option of statehood, 
and so um, funds could not be provided. Um, so there was like 2.5 million funds that were. Yeah, and there's a question around whether there's always a question around with yes no questions whether you're, it's leading in some way as well. I, I obviously I can't read Spanish, so I don't know if it how how leading it was, but um, that's always a kind of question that tends to, tends to come up. Like uh, I, I would argue that, for example, the question in Scotland in 2014, which should Scotland be an independent state was to some extent leading very, very lightly. <laughs> even that had been changed it, from an earlier question which was deemed too leading. Um, yes. Proposed, um, which I think was do you agree that Scotland should be an independent country? Yes, um, because yeah, in, in polling do you agree questions are always yeah. struck down as like blatantly leading because you're essentially telling someone that you want them to agree and people like doing what they've asked to do because they like being nice so yeah uh, quite possibly um next year we'll have a lot more to talk about in the way of scottish referendums yeah particularly if the prime minister keeps it saying things like um, devolution was tony blair's biggest mistake <laughs> Okay, so the next election we're going to be looking at in this episode are the Georgian parliamentary elections. Um, so the first round of this of this vote took place on the 31st of October, uh, which was followed by a second round um, a few weeks later on the 21st of November. At stake were all 150 seats in the Georgian parliament, 76 seats obviously needed for a parliamentary majority. and. It looks as though now that we can definitely say that the ruling Georgian Dream Party, um, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, has won a majority of the vote. We were joined um, to talk about this election um, by Ido Vok, international correspondent at the New Statesman. We recorded this interview um, a few weeks ago, so at the time we make references to the upcoming results of the second round of the elections. Um, we can now say that uh, Georgian Dream, that Georgian Dream um, won all of the second round contests as the opposition um, opposition boycotted con those contests. Um, we're going to get into why the opposition uh, declared this boycott um, in the main interview. Okay, so skipping back in time a little bit, um, I will go now to the interview that we recorded with Edo. <laughs> So I am Ido Vok, I am international correspondent at The New Statesman, um, and for about a year I lived in Georgia, uh, just well, in the autumn and then uh, through the summer of the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, while I was there, I worked for a local publication and I also freelanced writing in part on Georgian politics. Um, so I won't claim any sort of expertise, but uh, as Chris pointed out before we started, recording I probably uh, by virtue of having lived there have more knowledge than most on the topic. Um, so Georgia is a parliamentary um, republic, um, the prime minister exercises most of the power and the electoral system is a mixed system um, with about 30 seats uh, that are elected for a two-round system and then the rest are elected for a quite proportional version of lists 
Um, it's not a compensatory system like you would see in Germany or Scotland or New Zealand. It's a system where essentially the, they are elected separately, completely separately. So if you win both, you can get quite a, a bonus over the top of it. Um, the system was changed earlier this year in response to protests by the uh, partly motivated by the opposition parties. Ido, do you want to speak about anything that kind of brought those protests on? Or? Yeah, so Georgia has only ever had single party governments. I mean, obviously, during the Soviet period, uh, single party governments. And then subsequently, um, there have been peaceful transfers of power. Uh, so Misha Saakashvili's United National Movement took power from uh, Eduard Chervenadze in 2003 or four, um, And then Georgian Dream, which is the current ruling party, took power from uh, the United National Movement in 2012. Um, but every time there were only single party governments and a lot of Georgians thought that this was a bad thing and that uh, if there were, this was in part a function of the electoral system, which essentially was winner take all, um, because of this mixed system where uh, I believe half of seats were uh, awarded proportionally and then half were constituency-based seats. So in essence, a party that performed well was given a big, big winner's bonus. Um, and so there were protests from the opposition, which obviously partly motivated by self-interest because uh, the winner's bonus meant that they were losing out on seats, but also kind of general sense among Georgians that single party governments were bad and that perhaps if uh, there was a less winner-takes-all system, then, um, then there might be more compromise in politics and less of the kind of polarisation that comes with uh, big majorities and big single party governments. Um, but for various reasons, uh, a fully proportional system didn't actually make it through. So instead there was this compromise where 30 of 150 seats were... Uh, are, are awarded on a constituency basis and the rest are awarded proportionally. So it's more proportional than it was, but uh, still not completely. Um, and in theory, that was meant to make it more difficult for there to be a single party government. But because the, uh, the Georgian dream performed so well this time, there is once again a single party government. Should we talk a bit about the, the main parties this time round? Who were the main, the, the main parties that were in contention to be government yeah so i mean there, there is only one realistically there was only one party that was ever in contention to form uh, the government which was georgian dream which as i mentioned has been the ruling party since 2012 um it was founded and is widely viewed to be led uh, by this guy bitina ibanishvili who is uh Georgia's only oligarch so other post-soviet countries have oligarchs uh, in georgia there is an oligarch um, rather hilariously, you can go to the list of billionaires, the Wikipedia list of billionaires in Georgia, and it's just, you know, feeling like the, the title is billionaires, but that was just well. Um, yeah, so, so he is uh, he's hugely rich, um, and he made his fortune in Russia and then came back to Georgia to run against Misha Saakashvili's uh, United National Movement, which had been the ruling party since 2003, 2004 in 2012 and uh, took a landslide and became prime minister briefly and then resigned, but is widely viewed as ruling the country from the sidelines essentially. And um, he's fairly popular. Uh, he gives a lot to 
charity, relatively speaking, has a very good PR operation, which means he sometimes gets quite favorable articles on very dodgy metrics in Western papers. Um, and, and yeah, and that has just, uh, his party, so Georgian Dream has just won its third term. Ideological labels are a bit complicated because politics in Georgia is so based around personalities, so even usually in this case. Um, but broadly speaking, you could probably say that in theory, Georgian Dream is a sort of centre-left party, um, primarily because it's in opposition to the United National Movement, which was the, which is the main uh, opposition party at the moment, and which was the ruling party from 2003 to 2004 to um, 2012. And that uh, was run by this guy, Misha Sakashvili, Mikhail Sakashvili, who uh, was president before Georgia was a parliamentary country, um, mm. and which was kind of revolutionary. So had some really radical libertarian ideas. He had this uh, economy minister called Kaha Benukidze, who was like this super sort of Randian libertarian. He once said, trusting the government for, uh, to help you is like trusting a drunk to do brain surgery. Um, so they had these kind of wild economic reforms, which turned Georgia in the, in the span of a few years from, you know, sort of typical post-Soviet country, with very corrupt, huge state sector and so on, to uh, one of the easiest countries to do business in the world. So I think it's ranked about 10th or 8th or something. Um, and then there are various smaller parties. Uh, there's a new one led by a guy called Mamuka Khazaradze, uh, Lelo, uh, which I think means lion, um, he's, he's essentially fallen out with the current government because he wanted to build a big port and, uh, on the Black Sea and then the government sort of sent him packing, so he decided to form a new party. Um, they had a ton of money going around. When I lived in Georgia, their posters were everywhere, but they only polled 3%, so it uh, didn't go very far. And then there were various other, other ones. Um, there's a far-right sort of pro-Russian party called the Alliance of Patriots, and there's another far-right one. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's a, a European Georgia as well, which is kind of a splinter from UN, UNM, if I remember correctly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, uh, that's right. One, one of the, one of the um, aspects that changed with the electoral reform was that the threshold for entering parliament was lowered from five, um, right? The threshold for winning parliamentary seats went from five to 1%. Was there like a corresponding change in the number of parties? Uh, was there like expectations were that there would be many more parties which could enter parliament and probably lots of kind of odd fringe niche sort of parties. Do you know if that was the case? Yeah, so there was there was one called Girchi, which is a libertarian party, um, which had a lot of very funny videos. Uh, it was, it's a, a fairly new party, which had a lot of quite funny social media videos um, in the run up to the election. It was also quite anti-clerical, which is quite uh, quite unusual in Georgia because Georgia uh, obviously is a very religious country and the church has a huge amount of influence. So I think they appealed kind of to these young people. They they had a protest against. Um, gyms being closed with a bunch of sort of burly men protesting uh, for the opening of gyms and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I mean, by and large, the, the, the politics is quite evenly split, but like the, the UNM and the various split splinters and then Georgian Dream 
I mean, together take up three quarters of the vote. So uh, there isn't a ton of space for mm. smaller parties. And so there, there are a handful of smaller parties, but they're so kind of, they only poll three, four, five. I mean, after after the UNM and, and, uh, and Georgian Dream, the next biggest party polls 3.8%. I mean, there really just isn't that much space. And I think that's, yeah. I mean that, uh, if I had to guess, I would say that's probably a function of Georgia's being a small country. So like there are literally like limits, electoral limits to how many people, you know, I suppose how many candidates you can have in a small country. Um, and then politics is so kind of volatile, like the UNM wins a huge majority and then the next election, Georgian Dream sweeps it with the same, you know, half of the vote or whatever. Yeah. So, so there, there isn't that much space for smaller countries or yeah. smaller parties, sorry. Yeah, that's also kind of where the, the threshold change has clearly made a difference because like, sometimes when we talk about electoral systems, we talk about like, where you don't know how people would vote differently. But like, you look at the results for this one, it's like objectively, if the, <laughs> if the threshold was 5%, those other parties wouldn't have made it into parliament because they've all got like three, 4% of the vote. I'm always a little bit reticent on these labels in the in the post-Soviet world, and I think they're often um, put on on parties by outside observers. Um, but is there kind of a difference in the way that these, in which the way in which Georgia Dream and the UNM view Russia and the EU, or are they kind of broadly in a similar kind of place? The Georgian public is very anti-Russian. Um, because there is an ongoing conflict with Russia yes. over two breakaway territories called Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which are both secured, secured de facto independence from Georgia with the help of Russian troops. Um, and Russia fought a, fought, has fought several wars with Georgia, including most recently in 2008. Mm. So the Georgian public is overwhelmingly anti-Russia and the sort of pro Western alliances like the EU and NATO, uh, as a primarily, I would say, as a result of the conflict. Um, that means that in Georgian politics, there are there's very little space to be pro-Russian, essentially, or like openly pro-Russian, and sort of say uh, we need to have closer relations with Russia, or, because that would imply giving in to Russia on the territorial question, and the territorial question is a non-starter for like, the immense majority of Georgians. There are occasionally Georgians who will say, but why do the, Ab but do the Abkhaz hate us? There must be a reason. But most of them sort of think that uh, Russia is an occupier and, they, and, um, and, and there is just absolutely no question for, no, no space for compromise with Russia and absolutely no question of conceding uh, that Abkhazia and South Ossetia are not Georgia. That means that there's, very, very few parties are like openly pro-Russia. However, the UNM regularly accuses um, Georgian Dream of being in thrall to Russia, or sort of uh, allowing Russia influence through the back door covertly. Um, and a large part of this is based on Ivan Ishili's personality himself. Um, he made his fortune in Russia. He was a Russian citizen uh, until a few years ago, I think, before he. Um, he ran for prime minister. Uh, so he is, he is accused of being a Russian stooge. Um, and to be honest, I, I wouldn't be able to sort of judge the actual merits of that case, but, um, but certainly uh, by and large, at least rhetorically, there is very little space for 
anything but sort of pretty pretty aggressively anti-Russian rhetoric. Right. So obviously we've not had the second round of the um, the single member district contest yet, but it looks like pretty clear that Georgian Dream has won another majority. What were the what would you kind of put that down to really? Like what were the main issues going into the campaign that have made it so that it's able to kind of pull off this this new term? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, obviously the coronavirus, like any uh, like any election at the moment, is probably the most important election. Uh, the moment, sorry, obviously the coronavirus at the moment is the most important issue uh, for obvious reasons. Um, Georgia, until about September, had a very very good record on coronavirus. Uh, it was one of the world's outliers, uh, sort of numbers basically comparable to like. New Zealand or something. Um, and then it exploded beginning about last month. And now you have numbers much more comparable to like anywhere else in, in Europe or the world, essentially. Um, so it was in the months before the election, it was widely accepted that Georgian Dream would coast to victory on the back of that extremely good handling of the pandemic. Uh, you know, there were about nine, 10 cases a day for the entire time that I lived there. I mean, you know, really, really good numbers. Um, but then they exploded last month, and I think a lot of that uh, disappeared. Um, and then obviously there is there is Russia. There's the ongoing conflict with uh, with with Russia, Abkhazia, and South Ossetia, which always looms very large in Georgian politics. Um, and then sort of social issues like uh, the church. Is there a kind of belief that the economy is doing well or badly, or anything like that as well in terms of the issues of the day? I mean, like everywhere else, the economy has been devastated by coronavirus. Georgia depends quite heavily on tourism. I think it's a fifth of GDP, and obviously that's essentially non-existent this year. Um, I mean, so so separately, not because of Georgia, but I've had conversations uh, with people who say that in poorer countries, um, the, the primary effect of the coronavirus has been... Um, I mean, negative effects have been to do with the economic hit, not to do with the health hit, in part just because um, poorer countries by and large are younger countries and younger people just aren't as affected by coronavirus. Uh, and I would, and again, I'm not sort of a specialist on Georgia, but I would expect that it was, the situation is somewhat similar in that basically there, there are quite a lot of the population of Georgia, which is still a very agricultural country, and, very poor country unfortunately um they don't work they don't eat and um i think georgia, uh, georgia has probably been devastated uh, like like a lot of other countries in, in the world especially in poorer countries in, in europe and, mm. and elsewhere yeah but then that um kind of libertarian economic angle that unm has probably doesn't have a great deal of appeal in that kind of moment either yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to. It's 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 odd to focus on a country that's done well in terms of the coronavirus because there just seems to be mostly just terrible news out of basically all every almost every country. So I wanted to ask you, how how did the did the government tout its success in dealing with the coronavirus? Did it actively? Did the incumbent party actively? Um, talk about its success when it was, you know, compared to other countries in the world. 
And just to ask you to think whether or not that sets it up for uh, <clears throat> like a relative, I don't know, um, priming people, priming the population to then think that any deviation from that is a huge failure, right? So if you stake your, if you stake your um, popularity on doing well at containing the COVID-19 COVID and then there's an outbreak, um, is the fallen popularity like relatively large versus, you know, the other strategy, which is kind of like the Trump strategy or the Bolsonaro strategy, which is COVID-19 isn't really that bad. Um, and then you're relatively, um, maybe there's a size part of the population that is relatively inured to, um, you know, huge spikes in, in COVID-19. So, yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, there was certainly an expectation uh, from when it was obvious that George, from towards the beginning of the pandemic, when it was obvious that Georgia was doing much, much better than most other countries uh, in the world and in Europe. There was certainly an expectation. People knew that the elections were coming up and it was widely expected that Georgian uh, Dream would quite rightly uh, campaign on their record on coronavirus. Um, and yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, Perhaps if they had been touting their success on coronavirus and then cases exploded, it would make sense that um, people would would drop support for them. But in fact, the results of this election are almost identical to the results of the last election in terms of voter percentages. So uh, people seem to have stuck with with Georgian Dream. I would suspect in large part it's not because of any sort of love for Georgian Dream, but I think there is such a fear of there, there's there's such polarization and people are afraid of the other side and the other candidates. So, you know, Misha um, has some very hardcore fans, but he also has some very hardcore detractors. Uh, Misha being the head of the UNM, uh, former president, um, and so so I, I I would say that it it doesn't appear that uh, people it, probably because people don't think that anyone else would have done any better. And I think this is a case of incumbent governments, whether they've, mm -hmm. you know, if they've performed badly in a lot of places, I think the US is probably an exception to this, but by and large, I would suspect that electorates don't really, you know, they, they think that this was an unexpected challenge and that few governments could have done, could have really done very well. I mean, obviously some have like in New Zealand, but um, you know, I, I would, yeah, that. But for example, what we're seeing in the UK is um, yeah. people think that you know the UK hasn't done particularly well, but no other government would have done any better. And I, I yeah. suspect the story is similar, or or at least a kind of sense of of this of understanding that this stuff is really really hard, <laughs> and therefore um, and and therefore kind of giving a bit of understanding when kind of mistakes have been made, even if they seem kind of relatively obvious what i would say is that um in georgia there is there's definitely an, an understanding that like the economic costs are really are really important and as important as part of the story as the uh, health costs of coronavirus and um like when the government was trying to reopen the economy and uh, reopen some international tourism and so on that may well, I'm not exactly sure about what happened to cause a spike in cases, but that may well have contributed to the cases because, I mean, 
essentially there was close to zero cases in Georgia and then uh, there were thousands of cases a day so something happened um, that may well have contributed to it but I think people understand that Georgia is a, is a poor country and as I said if people don't work they don't eat and so they the government needed to reopen the economy even if it meant taking more risk with, uh, with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So um, in the aftermath of the election there's um, been a threat by the opposition parties to boycott the new parliament um, because of alleged um, fraud or problems with the ballot. Um, can you just speak a little bit more about kind of why that is? No, so, so they think, they, they say the election was rigged. Um, I, I mean, I've, once again, must confess, I don't follow this like mega closely. Uh, so I, I can't, again, I can't comment on the merits of that. Um, mm. But uh, some of the allegations certainly seem fairly credible. And there, there were things like, I believe, alleged vote buying and um, various sort of uh, un underhand practices. Yeah. Um, that the opposition is not very happy about. Um, I've seen I've seen their plans to boycott Parliament criticised, even from fairly op uh, opposition-minded people. I think in part because um, they have tried this before and it just ended up with complete irrelevance for them. Because you know you 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 uh, you deny yourself a platform. You deny yourself quite a significant. Uh, ability to or like ability to put your case out there and so um, yeah I've, I've seen this criticized um, whether they will go through with it I'm not sure but I think the government performed certain, like you know things may have been rigged at the margins but like Georgia Dream genuinely is popular and they would have it's like it's like I don't want to make a direct comparison but it is the same kind of thing as like Putin in Russia like the numbers might be rigged slightly but and large like in a fair election Putin would win and in a fair election Jordan the election was broadly free and fair you you I believe have read the OSC report so yes I, I have and the OSC seems pretty happy with the result okay the well exactly so yeah. uh, I mean they, they've got when... they've got some criticisms they basically think that the electoral commission is um is biased towards the Georgian dream and they think that um, the media is too polarised, although I would say that polarised media is in some ways better than what you have in a lot of other post-Soviet states. <laughs> like, um, there's plenty of countries where the media is just biased in one direction and having it biased in two is <laughs> like, at least an improvement over that, including in like places like Hungary now. Um, mm. And then and they also kind of... Uh, and they also felt that, uh, for example, uh, they were also critical of um, there not being enough social distancing at polling stations and stuff. But that's, you know, voters are difficult to control at the best of times. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they broadly seem happy with the administration of the election. Admittedly, some of the stuff that's being complained about is stuff that's tricky for... Um, tricky for election observers to pick up on like vote buying is a very difficult thing for, for electoral observers to pick, to yeah. um, to detect as someone who has observed elections in in armenia and ukraine um and and then there's kind of kind of wider administration stuff that so for example the osce doesn't tend to talk about gerrymandering 
um, because the US and France have quite bad gerrymandering, and so you don't, so there's not kind of formal guidelines around it for that reason. But I know that Georgia does have a history of gerrymandering. I don't know if there's any this time, but I wouldn't be surprised in terms of the single member seats at least. Mm. Yeah. Um, I get I get the the feeling. I mean, when an opposite when the opposition party when 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 a party major party kind of rejects electoral results, um, it's not only about perceived instances of fraud. It's also about their relation to the distribution of power um, mm. after the election. And after, you know, I think, I don't know, maybe you can talk to this. There was a kind of buildup through the electoral reform that it, it would mean the end of a kind of single party government and would force Georgian Dream into coalition talks. And maybe um, the kind of, spike that happened of COVID spike close to the close to the election maybe also increased that expectation um and then you know seeing the electoral results probably was a huge letdown for them um mm. and this seems to be kind of a strategy could possibly you know be part of a strategy of there's there's not much left to negotiate with unless we uh kind of um, question the electoral process itself. I don't know. Does does that have any credence? Yeah, that, that, sounds, any... that sounds right to me. Um, I think I think that, uh, that I think that sounds very sensible. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. I would I would also say there's um, Georgia is a very religious country, and people can be fairly superstitious. And there was a kind of expectation that Georgian Dream would go out, and the reason people some people expected that they would go out. I mean, obviously this is like um, not fully not fully serious, but even so, um, it's because Georgian governments never last more than two terms. This is the first to last more than two terms in at least 20 years. Um, and so, so they've just won a third term. Uh, so people sort of expected that Georgia would, um, that Georgian dream would, would somehow lose or the government would change in some way. And in fact, it didn't because they're gonna keep being able to govern um, as a single party without a coalition. Obviously, this is the, the third election in a row that the UNM has lost now. Do you see, there's, there, is there any, is there a path back to power for them at some point in the future? Or do you not think that that's a, a vehicle that's capable of, of returning to its like governing party status again? Yeah, the thing about Georgian politics is it's so based around personalities, people like Ivanishvili or people like Sagashvili. And so they have their very hardcore fans and they also have their very hardcore like detractors, haters, I suppose. Um, and when you have someone like Misha who has been around for so long and has a lot of, genuinely has a lot of fans, um, people think he, some people think he was a great reformer and he did great things for Georgia and um, there's a lot of merit in that case. Uh, but a lot of people hate him, a lot of people think uh, he's he's now been in Ukraine for quite some years. He's sort of trying to establish himself as a similar reformer in Ukraine than he was in Georgia, as far as I can tell, not getting particularly far. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's so based around personalities and kind of um, Sekishvili has has been away for so long and has been well. He's been away for so long and he's also been around for so long. 
and people have very settled opinions on him. Like perhaps there is, you know, uh, a quarter of the fifteen uh, percent of the electorate which really, really, really likes him and would love to see him back. But um, that's not a big enough proportion of the electorate to get UNM back to power. And so I would say that UNM's path back to power probably uh, is based around finding someone else in Sacagawea, essentially. I mean, whenever he pops up, I just get this on, on social media to see people sort of really being exactly exasperated. They're, they're just tired. They're like, why is he back? Just, you know, stay in Ukraine or, or shut up, full stop. Just don't try and interfere in, in Georgian politics. You've been gone for so long. You're not necessarily missed by all that many people. Um, and so if they can find someone less polarizing, perhaps less baggage, then who knows? Um, I mean, how, you know, who knows how Georgia Dream is going to handle the backlash or the, the, the end of the pandemic. I mean, Georgia's probably going to be, it's a very poor country, it's a very little country, so it's probably going to be towards the back of the queue for a vaccine and so on. So all these issues could play well for the opposition, but I don't think they will if they keep, uh, if they keep being so focused around one person who is very strongly liked and also very strongly disliked. Actually, I have uh, I've got two uh, questions, but they're 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 kind of weirdly specific. So I don't know if 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 there's actually an answer for them at the moment. But one is the fact that the electoral reform um, established that in order to form a, a government on its own, a party needed forty point six percent. And this seemed like a weirdly specific number, <laughs> like a very specific threshold. And I wanted to know, like, why 40.6%, like, why 40.6% and not 40% or 50% or whatever? It's a great question. Uh, I, have, I have no idea. I mean, the intent of the reform, well, it, originally there was a proposal to make the system uh, completely proportional, but it didn't receive enough votes, uh, I think, this year uh, or last year. So, um, so it didn't go through, and instead there was a compromise proposal, which was brokered by the U.S. Embassy. Uh, why is this forty point six percent and not um, not forty percent? I don't know. Uh, there is an intent to eventually make uh, make the system completely proportional. I think at the next election or the one after that, um, and who knows? Perhaps they will keep the forty percent. Well, they won't be able to because. You can't. Um, yeah, but I think the expectation was that Georgian Dream would not uh, would not do as well as they have. They've gained almost fifty percent of the votes, uh, more than fifty percent of the seats. And as I, I don't think during this, well, when these proposals were put together, I don't think either the opposition or the government really thought that Georgian Dream would do as well as it did. Yeah, although I mean, ultimately, it's still. It still lost seats overall in terms of beforehand it had a constitutional majority, right? So they could literally unilaterally write the constitution. <laughs> um, so that's a that's a big change still in terms of the yeah. politics of Georgia. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's kind of it's kind of interesting that um, Georgian Dream has both uh, had its you know it, it it had its cake and ate it in the sense that dominant uh i guess dominant party dominant incumbent parties have to walk this fine line between maintaining um legitimacy among the 
among the citizens and the opposition um, and try to kind of continue winning elections. And when, when a dominant incumbent party reforms the electoral system, they actually kind of want exactly what happened, which is the expectation, you know, the expectation kind of as, um, creating a sense that the electoral system is substantially more competitive and substantially fair. And yet when the, the majority and form a government again. <laughs> so they've kind of got exactly what they wanted, but then the opposition has now um, refused to accept the election, which which is kind of, yeah, it's a fly in their soup in a sense. Um, yeah. I would, I would say that for all the criticism of Georgian democracy, and there is certainly a lot you can make of it, I, I think it's uh, for the for circumstances and for the conditions, I think it's remarkably healthy. I mean, yeah. you have a government which... Uh, agreed to a reform which would in all likelihood reduce its power to a degree. You have a very healthy uh, and fairly free media ecosystem. Um, you have opposition parties, which as we mentioned, you know, are not captive to the ruling party in the slightest. There is incredible sort of yeah, no, political diversity. And so I, I think we can make all these criticisms of um, yeah. the democracy, but we also have to keep in mind the big picture, which is that yeah. for, for, for a little country, which is yeah. uh, partially occupied by Russia and which is, has a very tough neighborhood of like Iran, uh, Turkey, Russia. Yeah, Azerbaijan. Um, it's, it's a very poor country. Um, it's a former Soviet country, and yet it has... A, Broadly yeah. speaking, very, very healthy democracy. Yeah, one of the things that um, the OSC comment on quite um, quite um, pointedly in their report is they say how vibrant the campaign was and that, uh, and, and they particularly pointed towards a, a lot of activity on Facebook this year, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, Georgians live on Facebook. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's the only social network there is there. Uh, a problem yeah. because I didn't have Facebook, so I missed out on quite a lot of stuff. Um, but it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are some really funny sort of viral videos, people dressing up as I think. Um, the actor who played Darth Vader or something endorsed his mate who was running for UNM or something. I mean, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, and Georgia lives on Facebook, so viral videos have, have a huge impact, yeah, um, as, as do disinformation campaigns because there were. I think both opposition and government disinformation campaigns are unmasked by Facebook. Yeah, that's true in a lot of post-Soviet countries, I think. But I imagine that's probably particularly true in Georgia. (laughs) So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so we're going to move on now to talking about the presidential elections which took place in the Republic of Moldova recently. Um, So the first round of these elections were held on the 1st of November, and then this resulted in a uh, a runoff second round between uh, candidates Maya Sandu of the Party of Action and Solidarity and Igor Dodon of the um, Party of Socialists of the Republic of Moldova. Um, So this was um, an interesting election, once again, common feature of Moldovan politics. It pitted a pro-European candidate against a more pro-Russian one, um, and also featured uh, corruption as a defining issue. Um, Moldova, um, of course, is a uh, fascinating country for its size. Um, It has massive commonalities, especially in terms of language and history with Romania. 
um, while also uh, strong kind of post-imperial ties with Russia. Um, we're going to turn over to uh, Chris now, who's going to be acting as our resident uh, Moldova expert, given his uh, kind of extensive Romanian connections. Um, so why don't you start off by just telling us a bit about um, about the background um, to um, this contest, um, about the main political divides in, in Moldova. In Moldova, what you've seen is this kind of split in terms of um, identity. So very early on, Moldova very clearly signaled that it wanted to become part of Romania. And then essentially it was rebuffed. And so this has kind of created a tension around, okay, so if we're not Romanians, what are we? Um, so on the one hand, you have people who are basically still um, Romanianists, um, people who want to become part of Romania, who see themselves as ethnic Romanians, who um, see themselves as um, uh, and who want who, however long it takes, want to unify with Romania. Um, and those people are also very pro-European. Um, and so that's kind of created a kind of pro-European block of political parties, which shifts and changes over time, um, depending on what's going on. Um, but broadly speaking, there's always a pro-European poll in, in Moldovan politics. And on the other hand, there's the, the Moldavianists who want a kind of Moldovan nation state, which yeah, would be an artificial construct in many ways. But, you know, to some extent, all nation states are artificial constructs. <laughs> um, so, you know, they've been going out of their way to create a kind of new national culture would, would hardly be um, unique. But that also tends to be associated with, um, with kind of more pro-Russian stances. Um, uh, and and um, and because of uh, they see a kind of unity with Russia because of um, the uh, because of um, shared religion, um, both Romanians and Russians are obviously members of the Orthodox Church, and uh, and that's it's also complicated by the fact that the Moldovanist ethnic agenda tends to be supported by ethnic minorities. So obviously, it's more popular in Transnistria. Um, it's also there's also um, Ukrainian and Russian minorities in Moldova, um, and the the final ethnicity who are really fascinating are a group called the Gagouz. And what the Gagouz are are a um, they are a essentially. They're relatives of the Turks, so they don't quite speak Turkish, but they speak a very close language, um, which is also called Gagouz. But they are members of the Orthodox Church, and specifically the Russian Orthodox Church. And they have um, an autonomous region in the south of um, Moldova called Gagouzia, um, which they threatened to break away during the early period of um, Moldovan citizenship, uh, 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 in the early period of Moldovan independence. And they have also threatened to break away if Moldova ever, um, ever became part of Romania. Um, this is particularly annoying because Gagouzia 
um, actually has non-contiguous territory. It's basically like four groups of municipalities <laughs> across different parts of it, um, just to make things extra complex. Because yeah, once again, the legacy of empire. Um, there's just um, ethnicities do not just fit in kind of nice little contiguous regions. So um, that's a kind of another tension point. So what about the the party system um, in? in the last couple of decades um what does that look like um who have been the main parties um in moldova has there been any kind of consistency or or has is this been um uh, quite volatile as we've seen in, in quite a lot of post-communist um so around about 10 15 years ago the kind of the party system seemed to have settled around um around one party on the pro-Russian side, which was the Communist Party of Moldova, which despite the name was not really a left-wing party. <laughs> um, it was, um, it, it, it privatized things, it, it, um, it, it, um, it was very socially conservative, um, but it was pro-Russian, it had a lot of kind of Soviet nostalgia to it. It was, um, it, and and it was kind of quite strongly associated with oligarchs who were quite strongly associated with Russia. Um, and then on the other side, you then got a grouping of parties called the Alliance for European Integration. Both those groupings essentially got torn down by two major scandals, the first of which was the laundromat scandal, um, which basically revealed that um, Moldova had been used as a base for Russian money laundering on a kind of epic scale, <laughs> um, where, um, the, uh, where essentially Russian money was being moved into Moldova the Moldovan court system, which is completely broken, was then being essentially used to declare it as Moldovan money, and it was then being sent back to Russia. This obviously caused a number of major, uh, huge amount of outcry. This was then followed by an even worse scandal, the Moldovan banking fraud scandal, um, in which one billion US dollars went missing from the Moldovan financial system. Um, one billion dollars of you, because Moldova is so small and so poor, that's about equivalent to 12% of Moldovan gross domestic product. <laughs> so that caused major street protests and the alliance for european integration was in power at the time and it turned out that the prime minister's son and a bunch of other kind of leading figures were involved so both of those groupings in the wake of that scandal completely imploded um, what you then saw was the communists were replaced by um, by a party calling it the Party of Socialists of the um, of the um, of the Republic of Moldova, um, and they were led by Igor Dudon, who was a former economy minister in the in the communist government, 
And essentially what he did was he captured the grassroots of the Communist Party. So he basically had whole kind of local wings of the party defected overnight. So he essentially just, the Communist Party had had the kind of biggest grassroots machine in Moldova. So by capturing that, he essentially built a new party. It, it, it was, Dodon was from the off, more explicitly pro-Russian than the communists had been. Um, I, I remember when he first appeared going on their website and seeing pictures of Putin literally on the website. Tells you a lot about the kind of the, the kind of direction he was coming from. Um, and then the, the, the pro-European parties collapsed. You then got three separate groupings. So one of the pro-European parties survived and that was the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party was associated with a, an oligarch by the name of Plahutniuk, who owned most of Moldovan media and who was incredibly unpopular, he was incredibly unpopular, but, but basically due to his sheer wealth and position was able to retain a position, uh, position of influence. Um, you then had a party called um, Dignity and Truth, um, or DA, um, which means yes in Moldovan or, or Romanian, um, who, who was started by a kind of leader of a grassroots protest movement against corruption called um, Andrei Nastase. They formed an alliance with um, a party called um, Party of Action and Solidarity, or PASS, which means like step. Um, it's got a kind of association of kind of moving forwards. Um, so it's kind of like on Marsh in terms of naming. And those two parties formed an alliance which is called ACUM, um, which means now. Um, Moldovans love backronyms. And, and PASS was led by a former Alliance of European Integration Education Minister called Maya Sandu, who had, um, who had um, basically escaped um, suggestions of corruption because of the fact that um, she was essentially appointed as a technocratic minister. She had actually been working for a very long time for the World Bank in Washington, DC. And she had been invited back by the pro-European government to run the education ministry. So um, she was completely unassociated with um, it. And she was a very popular minister. She was one of the few remaining pro-European politicians who hadn't been tainted. Um, and so she um, quickly became the face of Akum. Um, uh, and then in 2016, um, you had the first direct presidential election, um, which came down to a fight between um, Dodon and, um, and Sandu, and um, Dodon won, um, but only by about 5% of the vote, in part because he had a far better party grassroots. And because the alliance, because the pro-Europeans had been more tainted with corruption in in recent period, and both of them were essentially running quite strongly on anti-corruption discourses. But what you then had was a parliament where the Democratic Party 
had um, uh, uh, what, uh, they essentially came second in the next parliamentary elections um, because they gerrymandered the electoral system. <laughs> it's essentially how you, the only way you can put it. <laughs> um, um, and you had this kind of free block um, politics because the Kum had run as a, a white on white anti-corruption movement. So even though they were both they and the Democratic Party were pro-Europeans, they didn't want to form a coalition with them because Plahotniuk was seen as the most corrupt person in Moldova. And, and he was incredibly unpopular. By that point, Plahotniuk ended up with a, an approval rating of minus 97, despite the fact that his party was so powerful. Um, Dodon wouldn't form a coalition with him either. So what ended up happening was, because the Democratic Party was the last part of the alliance of European integration that was still around, they basically stayed in power um, until Sandu and Dodon got together and formed a coalition to get him out. So you then had the kind of most <laughs> pro-Putin party and the kind of party of pro europe the kind of major party of pro-Europeans kind of coming together to form this coalition um, just last year. Um, and basically everyone who's an observer of Moldovan politics just went nuts. And basically it was like, let's try and kind of sort out some of the sort of corruption stuff. And Sandy became prime minister, um, which is essentially the most powerful political position in Moldova. The presidency is actually quite weak. So Sandu, uh, 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 and that became quite a kind of reforming government, but in a way that Don didn't particularly like. So he pulled the plug on the coalition after eight months and then formed another coalition with the Democratic Party, or one of the parts of the Democratic Party, because Plahotniuk, um decided to divide his party into two, with, one, with the Democratic Party leaning towards one way and then like another party, which he also still controlled, basically being like, oh yeah, we're still kind of pro-Europeans that would never go anywhere near the socialists, obviously, they're terrible pro-Russian, because that's the kind of lovely guy he is. <laughs> um, um, this basically ended with um, Plahotniuk being chased out of the country. He, I think he's now living in Romania. Um, and there's a bunch of outstanding warrants available on his arrest. Um, uh, and, but um, that was the government that was still in control. So turning to this year's um, presidential election now, um, what was going on with the, uh, with the major candidates uh, going into the So Dodon has um, become quite a controversial figure in and of himself. Um, he's, he's seen as very corrupt, and corruption in Moldova is essentially the second major issue. So, you know, um, so pro-Russian, pro-European essentially um, goes together um, is the kind of key dividing issue. And then after that is corruption because of all the scandals, because of the influence of oligarchs, because, you know, Moldova is so poor and corruption is a major part of the reason why. Um, Although there are other major reasons. So actually, like, for example, most of the industrial capacity is in Transnistria. 
so that that's a big problem. Um, Moldova is a primarily agricultural economy, um, and and part of the reason why there's such a pro-Russian bloc is because it's also actually quite dependent on exports to Russia, um, um, particularly in terms of wine. Moldovan wine is excellent. If you can ever buy any Moldovan wine, buy some Moldovan wine. You'll have a great time at a low price. But And Russians love Moldovan wine, but um, it's not really caught on in the West yet, so they don't make a huge amount of money out of it. It does. It, it is really popular in Romania. So um, Dodon is a controversial figure. He's considered to be quite corrupt. Um, Sandu has actually referred to him as a kind of exemplar of systematic corruption in, in, in Moldova. Um, he's um, also, the socialists have also, broadly speaking, mishandled the pandemic. Um, Moldova has not had a good pandemic at all. Um, particularly when compared to neighboring states. He's also become controversial because of just how Russophile he is. So um, he's never once gone on a visit to Romania, and he's never once gone on a visit to Ukraine, but he's gone to Moscow multiple times. He's gone to Minsk. <laughs> um, yeah. In terms of his loyalties, he's been fairly clear on where he stands. He's advocated for um, Moldova to become a federation with Transnistria and um, Gagelsia as equal members, which is very controversial amongst um, uh, 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 um, amongst the kind of center of opinion. Sometimes he's advocated for Transnistria to just be given autonomy, but he's essentially seen as quite dovish on the Transnistrian issue. Um, the his party is very strong at a grassroots level, but it's connected to many oligarchs. It's um, seen as, um, and it's seen as kind of connected to a lot of corrupt judges. Um, whereas Sandu has kind of increasingly rebuilding a party structure, which is kind of quite, quite grassroots, has been associated with, um, has been quite civil society. So one of the things they did during their brief coalition was they brought in a lot of civil society characters into government. So for example, the um, foreign minister Sandu appointed was a um, relatively famous academic. Um, so uh, um, called um, Niku Popescu, um, who had obviously had no connections whatsoever to, um, you know, and she's seen as an expert, you know, there's also a sense, I think, in Moldova that this woman could quite frankly be leading a very nice life in Washington, D.C., kind of having quite a lot of, in some ways, possibly even more political power than she would as an elected official in Moldova, because Moldova is small and poor and no one really cares about it apart from Romanians and Russians. Uh, Sandu, uh, so she's won a lot of respect that way. She's also become quite a good campaigner. So, like, one thing that happened during the second round of the election was that um, was um, after the first round, um, which Dodon came second, he he muffled a um, traditional Romanian Moldovan saying, um, which basically translates to something like um, 
the um, wounded sparrow and the magpie, <laughs> um, something along those lines. He referred to himself as a pigeon instead. And so um, Sandu, uh, which became something of a meme on like Facebook and social media, and Sandu recorded a video of herself on TikTok um, where she fed some pigeons in the main park in, in the capital, <laughs> um, which uh, um, and said, we must even be kind to the pigeons, which kind of went down very well. And there's loads of memes on Moldovan Facebook of like flying pigs, like did on. Um, they, the pro-Europeans have really linked into social media this time round. Um, so what were the, the results of both rounds then? Um, what did the picture look like um, after the first round? And then obviously, um, as we know, Sandu managed to clinch a victory in the second round. Um, so what happened there? I mean, I gather this was quite an unexpected result as well. In, in the first round of the election, Sandu won, which was a surprise. All the polls had shown that Dodon would, um, would come in first place. Um, but there was a kind of there was a sense that perhaps she wouldn't make it in the second round for the reason that although Dodon won, pro-Russian parties actually made up a majority of the vote. Um, in particular, the other major two parties are a, um, so a guy called um, Renato Ossati came third, who um, has a party called um, Partidul Nostru, which means our party, which um, isn't currently in the Moldovan parliament, but is polling quite well. And it's essentially based around him. He is essentially a criminal. Um, he has been in hiding in Moscow for years and has just come back. Um, he has been accused of many crimes over the years. Despite that, he still basically managed to attack the Don for being corrupt. Because that's the way politics in Eastern Europe goes, is you do essentially have people who are very corrupt standing up and pointing at each other and calling each other corrupt. Um, he um, he um, is incredibly charismatic by all accounts and very likeable and he did very well in he actually won the diaspora in Russia in the first round um, and he won 17% of the vote in, in Moldova um, which puts him in a fairly powerful kingmaker position. He then said he, he wouldn't vote for Dodon in the second round and that he, he advised his supporters not to do the same. So that's, that does seem to have depressed turnout for the second round among pro-Russian voters. There was also a party called the Shaw Party, um, which is connected to another, uh, to, which is connected to an oligarch who is in hiding. Um, and they won about 6% of the vote, but that's still significant enough. There wasn't really... Um, other significant um, pro-European parties. So the um, so uh, Sandy's ally Nastase ran separately, um, but he only got about three percent of the vote um, because all the Akum voters essentially voted for Sandu. And um, the former governing party, the Liberal Democrats, won like two percent of the vote. Um, because everyone now associates them with corruption. Um, so 
um, uh, so she she didn't seem like she'd have many places to draw on. Um, but what's one of the things that seems to have happened is the diaspora voted in a huge numbers. Um, so Moldova is a country of only about three million, three point five million. Um, there were two hundred and fifty thousand diaspora votes. Uh, <laughs> so they actually represent a huge portion of the second round vote, um, and and particular and Sandu won ninety two percent of the diaspora vote, <laughs> um, despite the um, um, she lost only in Russia, Azerbaijan, and Belarus. I think, um, uh, amongst the, the results that I've seen. Um, she also did very well in the capital, Shizhenol. Um, and, and she seems to have won basically every region apart from the north, which is very poor and has a lot of, I think it's got a sizable number of Russian and Ukrainian residents. So she seems to have won. Uh, she's won pretty, and she ended up winning fifty-eight percent of the vote. Which there were some polls which showed her on like fifty-one to fifty-two percent of the vote, um, but um, no one really expected her to win by that much. Part of that's the diaspora, who obviously don't appear in polls. Um, um, part of that is um, turnout seems to be quite low amongst pro-Russians and turnout was really high amongst kind of traditional pro-European groups. So like youth turnout was quite high. Um, although it should worth noting that Moldova is actually one of the few, Moldova is actually one of the few post-Soviet states which actually has quite an elderly population uh, which is getting older quite rapidly. Um, this is essentially because um, as part of their moves towards unification, the, the, uh, about 15 years ago, the then president of Romania, who was a bit of a populist rabble rouser by the name of Traian Besescu, essentially granted citizenship to about half a million Moldovans and has basically created a quite lib liberal um, citizenship policy for Moldovan uh, for Moldovans on it, basically if you could claim that your grandparents were Romanian citizens you can get Romanian citizenship if you're Moldovan um, this has annoyed the EU to no end because they've essentially granted freedom of movement rights to the poorest country in Europe <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and there's a lot of Moldovans in Romania but there's also a lot in um, Italy and Germany and even a few in the UK I actually had a look at the um, results of the diaspora in the UK and it turned out that the UK actually had the highest percentage vote for Sandu which doesn't surprise me because it requires being relatively educated and probably and affluent to move from Moldova to the UK compared to Italy um, for instance where there's actually more Moldovans um, because um, it's very easy for Romanians to pick up um, Italian because they're both Romance languages. Um, so what comes next now after Sandy's victory? Um, 
what are what are things looking like for her presidency going forward um and for the the overall state of Moldovan politics as well i guess Sandu, um, now she's president, has obviously got like a huge mandate and the socialists look a little bit broken. Um, while you're president of Moldova, you are not allowed to be a member of a political party. Um, but one of the first things the socialists did after the result was they announced that Dodon would become their leader again. Um, so he's, um, he's going to be in a position of influence, but he, uh, in some ways... Whereas before Dodon looked like a, a big asset to them, he now looks like he's probably dragging them down because his reputation has become so bad. Um, and, and particularly with Usati now on the rise, the socialists might be in trouble. Um, Sandu said that she wants to have early parliamentary elections. Um, which is not something the Moldovan presidency is actually relatively weak. It's not to the point of being a ceremonial role. She does have some quite important powers, but she can't just dissolve the parliament if she wants to. In order to stay in office, the socialists are probably going to have to um, do more deals with Plahotniuk, which is only going to make them look worse. And because the, the, what's left of the PDM is essentially the last group that's going to want to uh, uh, to dissolve parliament because um, they have no support. Um, so they're, they're dead. Um, um, so um, it's almost a question of when there are elections and if Dodon drags it out, he might actually make the pain worse for the Socialist Party. Albeit he might also um, help the um, our party. The other thing to worry about is if elections do come, whether Kum can win a majority, because of course they will probably um, run the election under a much more proportional system than the last time they were run. So that will make um, it harder for them to win a majority. Um, that will. Um, and, and if they don't, then can they form a coalition? There, there aren't really other pro-European parties, but um, Sandu, as her coalition with the socialist shows, is pretty pragmatist in terms, in terms of um, doing deals. And she's also, she's a politician who puts corruption above being pro-European. So if she can find a partner who is anti-corruption enough or is who, who is at least willing to agree to her anti-corruption agenda, then she can probably do a great... She, she'll probably be happy for a come to form a coalition. And um, the other kind of question... And, and even if she, they don't manage to gain complete control over government, the presidency does have a lot of important powers, um, particularly over foreign policy. Um, she can also essentially embarrass the government because um, she can, so the presidency has a right of legislative initiative. So she can present bills of, in front of parliament that are designed to um, embarrass the government or to um, try and kind of get her way legislatively. 
And um, but probably her most important power actually is that the president appoints judges and Moldova um, has an incredibly corrupt judicial system. So she can use that to clean up the judicial system. And if that's all she manages to do across her parliamentary term, that'll be a really good thing for Moldova. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Um, we'll be back later in the month um, with the uh, rundown of some of December's key elections. So expect to hear about the elections in Ghana, um, the widely boycotted um, elections in Venezuela, and also the Romanian parliamentary elections, um, which I'm sure Chris will be able to talk at great length, length to us about again. Um, so yeah, as usual, please do um, rate and subscribe rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and do follow us on twitter at ballot world and um, we should also hope to be getting out a bit of a 2020 retrospective and look forward to 2021 before the end of the year as well so watch out for that okay see you next time